very pleased to be moderator for your Q&A tonight with a filmmaker who many of you know because he's, uh, of course, won the BAFTA for Outstanding Debut just a couple of years ago with The Imposter. Please welcome writer-director Bart Layton. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for staying. I wish it was a couple of years ago. It was like five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. This is only... Well, you're still a baby. <laughs> Um, welcome, thank you for joining us, and congratulations. It's such a genre-defying movie, and I, I love that it's, it's smart, and it's funny, and it's sad, and it's an entertaining caper, but it's one with so many interesting ideas. We could be here all night, but they won't let us. Um, take us back to the very beginning. I, I, it's funny, I'd never even heard of Transylvania University in Kentucky, but when I mentioned this film to somebody, she said, oh, oh yeah, they've got you know, that, uh, the Audubon and the Darwin and all that. How did you come across this story to begin with? <clears throat> I just read about it. In a, I, was, I was on a flight. In my mind, I was coming back from Sundance after showing The Imposter and coming home from that. And, but I, I may, it may have been actually a little while after, but I just read about it in one of those magazines that I, don't, that I you know, only read on a flight. And <clears throat> it was um, just this extraordinary uh, mishappen caper. And I thought, you know, I, I thought it was a good story. I thought it was a kind of a fun uh, sort of comedy of errors and all the rest of it. But I wasn't sure that there was anything more than that. But there was something at the heart of it that seemed totally unexplained. And I guess that was the fact that not only, you know, the target of the heist was quite kind of unusual, but it was, the, it was committed by these young men who seemed to have everything going for them. And nowhere in, you know, and I did bits of reading afterwards, and nowhere did it hint at the kind of the why of it. And, and obviously coming from, from docs, you know, you always kind of go, want to go to the horse's mouth. And so um, we found out where they were. and they were Which in, was in prison, right? Which was in prison. They were all in different prisons at that stage. And, um, and just began this sort of strange correspondence. And, you know, they had a fair bit of time on their hands, so they... Um, <laughs> And they hadn't really had counselling, and they hadn't had, you know, obviously, why would they? And, and I don't think they'd been able to talk to their parents. So, so a lot of what w they put in these letters was this kind of very raw and truthful kind of outpouring of all of this stuff. And it was that that made me think, oh, no, this is, this is a lot more than just a, a kind of, um, you know, a, a great heist movie, potentially. This is really... A quite a relevant story, you know, of this lost group of young men who are looking in all the wrong places for an identity, and and you know they've been raised on this expectation that they were going to be interesting and special and important, and I actually feel like that is possibly even more relevant now than when it happened. This pressure to be a somebody and to leave a mark on the world, you know, regardless of whether it's a good or a bad one. And so it felt like, you know, we, we can do that. We can deliver on all the tropes of, of the heist movie, but, but perhaps we can get into this other thing about, you know, and I don't think it's limited to that generation. I think it's just sort of a, a thing that's it's a, a great... You know, their parents were successful in terms of, you know, what the American dream was supposed to look like, but in, the, in these guys' eyes, that was kind of mediocrity and uh, a kind of a, a fate worse than death, you know. Did the process, do you think, of them corresponding with you and then meeting with you and being involved in the actual filming, do you think that gave them more of a, um, 
a look into into what their motives had been than they would have had otherwise? Yeah, I mean, they weren't they were reluctant because I think they, you know, it had been devastating for the families. It's a small town. You know, I've spent uh, as much time as I want to spend there. <laughs> and um, But it is, it's really like, it is like the beginning of Blue Velvet. You know, it's, it's white picket fences. It is, you know, it's a horse town and there's a lot of wealth and, there, and it's kind of Pleasantville. And this story... You know, these young men should not have been in this situation. And so, you know, the families were mortified. They were kind of pariahs. And so they weren't, uh, you know, it took a bit of persuading to get everyone uh, to participate. And as you know, we only have four of the eight parents. So, you know, the other four were still not willing to, to go there. You do interesting things with the unreliable narrator mm. and memory and the fact that no two people, I mean, in the room, no two people ever quite see something mm. from the same perspective. Um, did some of the dialogue actually come from them? And uh, the, when, they're in, you know, when you have an actor saying to the real guy, did it really happen that way? Well, I don't remember, but that's the way Warren tells it, so I think. Mm. All of that is really kind of an organic... You know, it, I, I mean, the, the process, and, you know, we can talk about it here because it's a sort of more industry thing, but, you know, there wasn't really a template for the, you know, had to get, you know, write a screenplay in order to get the money to make the film. But, of course, the script contained all of the, um, it contained all of the, I guess, not dialogue, but it contained all the words of the real people, and that was based on what they had put in their letters. But, of course, on the day... You know, when when we were actually shooting with them, they they didn't say half the stuff that I had expected them to say and that I had written. <laughs> and and of course, then you're in that situation of like, well, oh shit, you know, how do we? Um, because the last thing you want to do is turn your documentary contributor into an actor, because then immediately you lose the thing that they're there to do, which is this thing of rooting you and us and the story in, in authenticity and in, in reality. And, but yet, I'd got this very carefully woven, and, and, it, and it was all off to the races, you know. So I had this, the interviews that were going to be shot, then I was going to go back and prep the drama, and then we had, you know, the actors, like, it was all happening. And so I got halfway into the interview, and I was just like, we're going to have to throw that all away and go back to... How, you, how I would normally approach a, a normal documentary interview where I didn't have a kind of list of what I wished them to say. I, and, and actually, there were things that came out of that process which ended up being more poignant and more interesting. And then I had to call and say, I need to press pause, and I need to go back and rewrite the script around what they really said rather than what I hoped they were going to say. Mm. There are sequences that are like a really polished, slick Hollywood classic heist caper movie, and then you bring us up short before we get to succumb too much to the fantasy of that, you deliberately rewind a moment and play it back a different way, or um, bring in some, remind us that, it, that this is something that really happened. How did you decide where to do that, and why did you do that? I guess, again, it all came out of a kind of an organic thing of, you know, you know they would do... You know, so we'd talk, you know, when, when it, obviously I shot all of the interviews separately, but, you know, I would come to Warren and ask him to recount the same incident that Spencer had recounted, you know, the day before. 
and he would remember a different guy and it was happening in a different place. And, you know, and so then, you know, if it's a conventional script, you're going to choose one, you know, if you're a producer, you choose the cheap version, and if you're the <laughs> director, you probably choose the cool version, you know, whatever it is. And, and, and actually, I thought, well, this is really, you know, a lot of what I wanted to do was, I guess, slightly pull the curtain back on how stories like these get fictionalized and, and, and how not just, we haven't just got unreliable narrators, but we've got, you know, but memory is, is fundamentally pretty unreliable, as you said. And, and it was sort of about exposing that. So all of those tricky bits were kind of came out of conversations that I would have or, you know, talking to the actors early on and then having that constant, you know, looking at the script and going, is this really how it happened? You know, and I was like, well, let's put that in there as well. Let's kind of, you know, and there was a, a point where I had a version of the script which went probably way too far in, in that kind of meta direction because I got fascinated by the whole idea of misremembering and also this idea that Warren being a kind of consummate fantasist, you know, how much had he created this fantasy for them all to play in and none of them wanted the bubble to be burst and so he would keep creating the solutions to the obstacles that Spencer kept wishing would arise in order to call the whole thing off sort of thing. Yeah. So it all came out of the kind of the story and the telling of it and that would spark an idea of you know, well, let's, let's make a virtue of it rather than going... And, and whenever I would sit down with a friend who's a real... what I consider to be a real screenwriter, they would go, you know, you just need to take... There's too many characters. Have three characters. Let's amalgamate. And I was like, no, we can't do that. That's not, the, what we, you know, what the game is here. And there were lots of problems like that. You know, I wanted Spencer... It was really his journey into the wild that he wanted, and he should have been in the room. But he wasn't, and so that, and, and you know, for, for you know, and if it was a normal screenplay, you would have absolutely had him in the room, and so there were things like that that I was, you know, I felt like we had to really, really stick to the to the truth, come what may, kind of thing. There's so many things we could talk about, and I will go to the audience, but beforehand, I just want to ask, talk about casting. Um, your first time working with an ensemble of actors and well, um, any actors really, yeah. And I wondered <laughs> <laughs> how I, you weren't obviously you weren't looking for lookalikes, but looking for some chemistry and mm. some spirit that was akin to the real guys. But did you did you pick one to build on, or how did you do yeah, it? Yeah, kind of. It was sort of like how you put a heist together in a way. It was sort of um, find the Daddy Ocean kind of character and then build out from there, and, and um, uh, there was a point where the script went out into the, you know, the madness of Hollywood and all that, and suddenly we had the option of casting, you know, probably the biggest names of that age group, you know, I won't mention names, but, you know, you, you know them all from these huge franchise movies and all the rest of it, and that was very attractive to the finances, but it felt very counter to what I felt we wanted with this, not just because we had the real guys, but I just didn't want that added baggage. And I also, a lot of those young guys are very kind of pretty. <laughs> um, they're very nice, punchable faces. You know, they've got this kind of thing that is really like, you know the people I'm talking about. And I, um, and I really wanted them to be like you or I. I wanted them to be um, quite sort of natural and, and 
and authentic. And, and I worked with Avi Kaufman, who's a, you know, for whom casting is this sixth sense, and, and, and learned a lot from her. And, and um, once I had Evan, who kind of blew everyone away, um, I sort of built from there, and, and you know, self-taping is a big thing now. So you get all of these young guys in their bedrooms from all over, you know, and, and Barry Kyogen had sent this amazing uh, audition, but he looked about 12, so I was like, oh, that's never going to work with Evan. And, but, yeah, I, I kept coming back to it because there was something so... And I didn't know him. I didn't even know he was Irish. There was no hint of a of an American accent or anything, of an Irish accent. And, and I just came back to him again and couldn't, kind of couldn't get it out of my head and then brought him to New York and brought Evan to, from L.A. And, and we did this chemistry read and they were like, they were amazing. And it didn't seem too wild an age gap. You know, Barry had done this pathetic bit of, like, bum fluff that he'd managed to grow, you know. <laughs> <laughs> OK, let's open it up to the audience. We have... Can I see? Thank you. Go ahead. Um, the, there's a scene in New York where the Asian uh, shopkeeper throws out water <laughs> onto the street, and a scene in Amsterdam where an old black guy on a bicycle with two kids in the box in front. Were they serendipity or part of your, as I suspect, brilliant direction? <laughs> That's very, very uh, kind of you to put it. When I was uh, that was that to me was like if you had to ask me what the biggest difference or what the hardest thing to for me to get my head around in, in terms of moving from docs to drama was was that thing. So I imagined that that scene in New York, we would just, because I wanted to see it like a kind of movie scape through their eyes, and obviously we kind of go through some familiar movie territory, you know, under the L train, French Connection, and you know, the, and I figured, well, like we would in a dock, we'd just roll around and point the camera out the window, and that's just, and in America, on a union shoot, that is, you know, first of all, you have to have a police escort, then every single person that you point a camera at has to be uh, an extra, fully paid up extra. So all of those people, the, the, you know, the black guys crossing the road, the Hasidic Jews, they weren't even, they had fake beards. I mean, like, uh, and that just was such a trip for me because I was like, you know, and they were all, and so that woman and, of course, you know, her throwing the water on cue and all of that was, you know... It's it's a kind of mad thing that so yes, but no in in Amsterdam it's a whole other thing you can you know and here I, I imagine it's a, it's much freer and so that was that bit was serendipitous and the other bit was very carefully planned and I I found trying to because you know with the imposter we just would be six of us in a minivan and we would pile around and the light would be kind of good there and we just all you know and that was how I. And I tried as hard as I could to bring some of that methodology to some, and it was unbelievably difficult, yeah. Um, what are the relationships between the four guys now? Yeah, who's with? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, what, sorry, what are the relationships yeah. between yeah, the four so, now? Uh, well, Spencer and Warren are still close. They're still very, they're still probably best friends, and... The others, you know, after that, the scene in the car outside, you know, that was the end of the fantasy and it was the end of the friendship, really. And, and Chaz immediately tried to distance himself from it and there was a whole thing in the, 
you know, in the in the court hearing where he was sort of say, trying to mitigate his involvement, saying he was in the just in the car and was never really part of it. And so after that, they never really spoke. But they all came back. They were all at Sundance for the premiere, and that was the first time they'd, <laughs> they'd been together. And they were totally civil and fine. I mean, you know, there's some frostiness. But Warren and Spencer are still, like, best mates, yeah. Wasn't it just the cherry on top that Warren is studying filmmaking now? I mean, you, can't, you couldn't <coughs> make any of this stuff up, couldn't you? No. Um, one of the themes of the film is their desire to feel special. Mm. Is it odd in some way that you making a film has actually fulfilled their wish? And as a documentary maker, do you have any thoughts about the morality or just your feelings about actually affecting the subject that you filmed? You've affected it as opposed to just reported it now. Um, it's a great question and one that I have been asked before. Uh, I'm not sure I've affected the subject, but I guess I've affected... You mean the subjects? Themselves. Yeah, the sorry, the subjects. Yeah. They, they well, now feel presumably special yeah, because they are. Yeah, it was something that, that, um, that I thought about a lot, and I kind of thought... I guess I thought, you know, it was always very clear in my mind, it was very clear in the screenplay as well, that the form of the film would kind of mirror their descent into the into the fantasy, them losing track of, uh, I guess, reality in a way. And, and so that, I guess, you know, there's a point where the real voices become much less, where the score changes, the way the camera moves changes. As you says, it becomes a bit more Hollywoody, up to the point, this very clear point, where they cross this line that shouldn't be crossed. And so I was always pretty clear that they were never going to look heroic in that moment. That, and, and the thing that was very clear to me when I had those conversations with them was that they let this bad idea go too far and almost the microsecond, the millisecond that Warren physically made contact with that woman, he wanted it, he regretted it instantaneously, he wanted to take it back. And I, I, I felt like we would show that in a quite a visceral way and that actually felt, and, and you know, certainly the conversations I've had with young people, particularly in America, to whom this film speaks, almost it's too close to the bone for some of them. You know, this young journalist in Seattle said to me recently, you know, her and all her mates who are all art students feel like, you know, if they don't have a Wikipedia page by the time they're 40, won't that mean that they haven't done anything with their lives kind of thing? And so a lot, I just, I guess I felt like, you know, that getting into that was, was, was was kind of more important, you know, was worth telling the story, even though, yes, on one level, you know, they get the notoriety that they were clearly craving, but I think the cost of it, you still get to see that. I mean, I don't know whether you guys found that, but I certainly, when I was interviewing them, I still felt that they were kind of shells of themselves. You know, Eric is, the two, especially the two who are in the room, you know, they, they crossed this line and felt like they'd become doomed and become bad people, and, and what was it for? So, yeah, I mean, I, I, it was a conversation that, that we had a lot, and I felt that as long as we illustrated the cost of it, you know, morally, but also in, in terms of their conscience and the aftermath and, you know, and all of that, that, that was kind of where I ended up. Um, I'm intrigued, actually. There's something you said about uh, that you reached out to them while they were still in prison. So... Did you know that they would be coming up for release at some point, or did you 
put everything on hold until they were released? Or what was well, the process there? Initially, um, when we made contact, we wouldn't, weren't even able. Some big Hollywood producer had bought the life rights and had bought the rights. There was a Vanity Fair article, and they bought everything. And there was a, a kind of real, really commercial screenplay in the in the works. So, we just ended up kind of having this correspondence without really knowing that it was ever likely to amount to anything and I never really thought I wanted to do it as a doc and it was always this sort of if it was going to be anything it was going to be this sort of weird hybrid thing um so yeah it was it just it came out of this kind of continued um correspondence and then eventually they had the option of renewing the right you know uh the option that the this big Hollywood producer had, had offered them, and I think they'd become a little disenchanted with that. And I said, "Well, we're not going to be able to pay you anything, and we're not, you know. So if you want me to do the tell the story, then you know I, I'm up for it. But it's not going to be a big Hollywood glossy sort of thing. And, and in the end, they wanted. Well, I started probably started writing to them about five or six years ago, and then they came out of prison two years ago, and we shot the interview shortly after that, yeah. Yes, ma'am. For some reason, when we start asking questions, one of the things we forget to say as an audience is, what a cracking film. So can <laughs> I just say that? What Thank a you. cracking film. Thanks very much. Um, and, and also to say, I don't think you made any one of them into any form of hero. One of the things I thought was powerful about it was it started off as it, though it were a heist film, and we so quickly descended into something very different and very real. So I'm not left with any illusion that any one of those is a hero or that, or that in any way they've come out of it as winners. So, and what I also wanted to ask you, please, after saying that, was uh, one of the things I struggled with slightly was still understanding why they went ahead. And there was a very seminal moment where you, and I want to ask you if it's real, where they saw, he saw the flamingo between mm. day one and day two. And I really wanted to ask you if that was a fabrication or if it was something real, please. You, well, you kind of caught me out on that one. <laughs> I mean, basically, that's probably one of the only things. Where, I mean, again, you know, yes, he didn't, he didn't meet a flamingo in the road, but he, he talked about this, this thing where he was constantly looking for, either, for omens or signs. You know, this is one of the things that Spencer talked about, that he was, and he didn't really know how to read them. You know, he was saying that he was looking for things that were like an endorsement of you should go through with this because, you know, and I guess I wanted to play on not just the Darwin thing, but, you know, Audubon being this young guy who was also wanting to be an artist who lived in Kentucky, who kind of had this journey into the wilderness to find himself. And, and Spencer ha now has this huge connection with birds. You know, he, he paints birds quite brilliantly. He's a fully paid-up member of the Audubon Society. He takes people who are... I couldn't put any of this in the stuff, but now one of the things he does every weekend is he takes people who are losing their sight out bird-watching. He's like a guide for them, and he describes all of the stuff and all the rest of it. And so he has this sort of connection, and I wanted to find a way of, of putting that and him talking about this, this thing of looking everywhere for omens and not really knowing how... To, to read them, that, that 
was what partly inspired the shot where he kind of drives past the ghost of Christmas future sort of thing. And also that encounter in the road where he's, he's like, does this mean I, I, is this the call of the wild or is this the kind of the opposite sort of thing? So yeah, it was a bit of it. We got somebody over on this side, anybody? Thank you so much for an absolutely brilliant film. Oh, um, it's a deeply moral tale and a cautionary tale. And I kept feeling that this is a film that should be played to potential young offenders or first-time offenders. <coughs> and is there a way in which this film is being used in that capacity? I mean, it, you're not the first one to say it, and there's someone in... Um, in the States, and I think, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to remember where, but uh, someone who got in touch in order to do, I think it might have been Chicago, in order to do a screening for uh, exactly that in, in high schools and stuff. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm glad, it, it, you know, it always was intended that it, you know, it should feel like a cautionary tale. I think it's sort of, that age is such a, crazy age for, you know, whether you interpret things as good ideas or bad ideas. I think it's a little clearer for us probably than, than people of, of that age. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm hoping no one's going to turn around and think it would be a smart idea to, to rob their library or whatever it is. But, um, but no, I'm, I'm glad you think that. And, and someone has been in touch with a, with a similar idea. Well, I hate to break it to you, but BAFTA want their cinema back in a few minutes because there's another screening. But I have one last question I'd like to ask you. Uh, sure. Spencer seems to feel that all great artists have had to suffer for mm. their art and that he's lacking some kind of torment or life uh, trauma. Um, do you think that's true? Do you, would you agree with him? Uh, it's an interesting. It's one that Barry and I talked about a lot because, you know, the interesting thing about... Barry is that he has had kind of the opposite um, childhood from Spencer. You know, Spencer's lived this kind of very sanitized, you know, soccer mom type uh, existence. And Barry has come from like, you know, the real mean streets of Dublin. You know, he's, he's, he's a real scrapper. And, and I wasn't sure whether he would be able to relate to it, but we talked a lot about that idea because I think for actors as well, it's like, you know, what have you got to draw upon? I'm not sure, I, you know, I, I, the thing I loved about Spencer as a character and as, as a, I guess, a, a central character for the, for the movie, and I could have chosen e either any of the four in a way to be our kind of audience proxy, was the fact that his main problem was that he didn't have a problem, you know. And I guess, um, I suppose I had a pr rather more tumultuous upbringing than, than probably he did, but I can certainly, even though I didn't really sympathize with it, I could relate to the idea of, you know, what am I going to, what have I got to say? What am I going to have to talk about? Who, you know, what am I going to have to make art about of value? And I guess, you know, probably, you know, if you open any how to write a novel or screenplay, you know, the first thing it says is write about what you know. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know a whole lot and you haven't had it, the bit I guess I disagree with is that um, you need I'll to do something uh, destructive, okay. you know. I think he probably could have just moved to New York and 
met a girl and taken some drugs and kind of, you know, gone to a rock concert or whatever, you know. <laughs> well, on, a, on that note, thank you for a wonderful coming-of-age movie masquerading as a, thank you, as thank a you. heist. Thank you. Thanks so much, thank guys. You thank you Real pleasure.